Okay, let's go into Dr. Schwartz's case. Okay, this is a 32-year-old female diagnosed with breast cancer in August 2002 when she presented with a 6-centimeter right breast mass at 34 weeks of pregnancy. She had actually noted it earlier in pregnancy and had shown it to her gynecologist, and it was pretty much that it's just asymmetry, not to be concerned. By 34 weeks, it was obvious that it was a problem. A core biopsy was performed and demonstrated a grade 2 ductal carcinoma, ER positive, PR negative, and HER2 new 3 plus by immunohistochemistry. At 36 weeks, she underwent a cesarean section, delivered a healthy boy, and then was referred to me. And she wanted, obviously at age 32, with a newborn first child, she wanted to be treated as aggressively as can be done. And at that point, I started her on neoadjuvant chemotherapy with TAC. I believe this was before the NSABP 27 data was even available. She tolerated the TAC well and underwent a right modified radical mastectomy. Did she have a response to the treatment? She had an excellent in-breast response. And I guess this was also before the Buzdar neoadjuvant trastuzumab oh, yeah, data came out, before. too. Because we want to talk about how you might approach this patient today. Mm-hmm. So she had a great response to TAC. It's almost hard to imagine the pre-adjuvant Herceptin days anymore now, you know? And this is just three years ago. So she has a great response. What was seen pathologically after the mastectomy? In the breast, there was only residual DCIS, less than a centimeter. However, nine axillary lymph nodes out of, I believe, 20 or so. In nine of the lymph nodes, there were micrometastases present, less than two millimeters, but clearly positive nodes. So someone still at very high risk for relapse based on her response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And again, had a discussion with her, and she said, listen, I don't care if it's proven. I want something as aggressive as possible because, as you know, we are left in a little bit of a quandary what to do after neoadjuvant chemotherapy even people who don't have terrific responses. And although this was pre-ASCO 2005 and we didn't have the Herceptin data, she was aware of the studies being done with adjuvant. And in talking it over with her, I elected to treat her with carboplatin AU6 for four cycles and concurrent Herceptin, which she received, I think, for about eight to 10 months. And after finishing the carboplatinum, we added hormonal therapy and discussed with her tamoxifen versus other options. And again, saying, I want whatever is considered potentially to be the best. She elected to be treated with monthly Zolodex and anastrozole. And where is she right now? She's now 39 months into the hormonal component without evidence of disease recurrence. How's she doing on the hormonal therapy? She never complains. She's just happy that she's watching her child grow. And she really isn't having side effects, which sometimes is a concern when a young woman on hormonal therapy doesn't mention too much about hot flashes, but her estrogen levels are below 100. And in terms of vasomotor symptoms? I think she will not complain for fear that I might change a treatment. Right. Have you looked at her bones? 
bone density? She's had bone densities. Normal? They're fine. Has it dropped on those Olodex ruminants? Not substantially enough. She hasn't dropped into an osteopenic range. So this woman presents a variety of interesting questions, a lot of which I thought would be interesting to talk about how you'd approach her today as opposed to how she's been approached over the last few years. She's kind of almost the exact opposite in terms of attitude to Rich's patient. This is a woman who wants everything possibly done, maybe more typical of the average breast cancer patients. There are a lot of obvious things for us to talk about. Let's start out talking about the issue of neoadjuvant therapy of the patient with a HER2, and in this case, ER-positive tumor. Julie, what's your approach to that nowadays, and what are your thoughts about the BuzzDAR data and where that might be heading? Well, the MD Anderson data with actual overlap of epirubicin in a FEC regimen with trastuzumab and then concurrently with taxane showed path CR rates in the 60-70% range. And with short-term follow-up, the cardiac issues did not appear to be major. In this day and age, I think we'd all give her the trastuzumab and probably overlapping with taxane in the adjuvant setting. Anthracyclines are good drugs in her two positive patients, though, so I would probably continue to do that. And So specifically, she has a six-centimeter tumor. What exactly would you have given her neoadjuvantly or... So with her HER2 positivity, I probably would have given her four cycles of dose dense AC and then followed by weekly paclitaxel overlapping with trastuzumab. And after 12 weeks of paclitaxel, I had her go to surgery at that point and then continue the trastuzumab to total a year out. So no post-op chemo? Well, we all struggle with these nine positive nodes. We have no data that shows that any further chemotherapy will do anything, but we all cringe, and it's hard to talk to our patients about that. In somebody who's ER positive, I have a little less trouble with that. In ER positive, HER2 positive, they're going to get other great treatments. So I think I would not have given her any post-op chemotherapy, even if she still had nine positive nodes, but relied on the continued trastuzumab and adding an endocrine agent. I'm assuming that she probably got radiated. Yeah, she too. did have post yeah. chest wall. Same question to Rich. Again, how would you have approached her initially today? A woman like this comes in with a six centimeter ER and her two positive tumor. Overall, I would have offered her a Herceptin-based regimen that included concurrent taxane and AC. And do you think for both of you, is there any role for utilizing a buzzdar type regimen in a non-protocol setting with anthracycline and trastuzumab together, Rich? Yes, I think that if a person wanted to use that, that's reasonable. We have data that has a high path CR. We don't have any long-term follow-up on that. It appears that the cardiotoxicity is acceptable in that highly selected population. So that's a reasonable alternative, but you asked me to pick one. Julie, do you think it's a reasonable alternative in non-protocol setting? I think it's very exciting data. I don't think it's ready for prime time because although there's synergy from overlapping the anthracycline and the trastuzumab, I really do worry about the long-term outcome and following it. It is being used somewhat in the community. It hasn't been compared to the same regimen where the trastuzumab doesn't overlap the anthracycline. There are a lot of questions, I think, that remain. It's not irresponsible to do it. There is some data to back it, but I don't think all the comparisons I'd want to see have been done. And we certainly have much longer term follow-up by not overlapping the anthracycline and the trastuzumab. 
Rich, I've been hearing that maybe the American College of Surgeons, maybe the NSABP, maybe both might actually try to study the Buzdar regimen in a randomized trial. Is that going to happen? The American College of Surgeons will study this in a randomized fashion. The NSABP decided not to participate. Just to follow up again in terms of the trastuzumab story, Julie, where are we heading in terms of the next generation of adjuvant trials looking at HER2 positive patients? We, the collective international community, is looking at duration and the French have a six versus 12 months of trastuzumab and we're waiting for the one versus two year data from the HERA trial. Lapatinib is being incorporated into the next big HER2 positive adjuvant trial and the current schema would look at an ACTAXANE kind of base with one arm receiving the full year of trastuzumab, another arm receiving both trastuzumab and lapatinib concurrently for a whole year and overlapping the taxane. And then the third arm in the proposed trial would be to omit the trastuzumab and give a year of lapatinib. There are are other variations. We've been talking with the Europeans about giving some trastuzumab in that arm, maybe doing six months of one and six months of the other to kind of get the non-cross resistance. But that's where we stand right now. Rich, what about the NSABP? I know at one point they were talking about looking at combining bevacizumab and trastuzumab. Where are we right now in terms of that decision? I think that it's currently in progress, that the NSABP in their HER2 population was going to look at, again, the addition of Avastin in that population. So they're taking a little bit different route. Julie, you mentioned lapatinib. Can you sort of briefly summarize what came out of ASCO related to lapatinib? Certainly was one of the big stories. Yeah, so the major story that was added on as a scientific session after it was kind of broken early was a front capecitabine plus minus lapatinib study in patients who had already had anthracycline, taxane, and trastuzumab. And a full 98% of patients had progressed on the trastuzumab. And during an interim analysis, the Data Safety Monitoring Board felt that they had met the statistical endpoint for an early disclosure and closing of the study, and so it was unblinded and presented as a press release first, which is how we're hearing about a lot of our data now. It was impressive. There was a doubling in response rate. There was a doubling in time to progression and for the combination versus single-agent capecitabine. And this was a group who had already had progression on trust So there will be an expanded access program in the interval. We are getting approval for the drug. It's not currently available. A couple of other studies looking at the drug in refractory or relapsed inflammatory breast cancer, looking at lapatinib, which is an oral small molecule, a dual HER1-2 tyrosine kinase inhibitor that can cross the blood-brain barrier. So a trial looking at brain METs due to breast cancer that was kind of a proof of principle showed some dramatic responses in a couple patients. And then a look at all the cardiac toxicity data to date on all of the lapatinib trials. About half of the patients had breast cancer, half had other diseases. Edith Perez presented this, and to date, drops in ejection fraction, which I believe it was a 20% drop, were 1.2% across the board, and symptomatic congestive heart failure was on the order of 0.1% across the board. So the cardiac signal doesn't look as strong as it does in trastuzumab. I think we'll need longer follow-up, though, because a lot of these patients had six months or less of therapy. 
I want to just pursue a little bit one other aspect to this case, which was the hormonal therapy. Okay, this patient obviously very high risk, ER positive, but also HER2 positive, sort of grabbing you by the white coat, going, I need everything possibly you can do to reduce the risk of recurrence. In this case, Dr. Schwartz, you chose to use a therapy that we know is not uncommonly utilized, both in community-based oncologists as well as clinical investigators, which is ovarian suppression plus an AI. Rich, what are your thoughts about that type of strategy in this situation? Well, I think that there's certainly a rationale to use it. There is one unpublished result that supports its use in the metastatic disease setting, and we know what happens in metastatic disease has up to now been pretty well reflected in early-stage disease. But there's no early-stage disease studies that have actually tested this approach, and there are two ongoing that will do that. So it is outside the standard of care, but I understand what the rationale is for it, and I think it's especially in this HER2-positive patient, it may be a more effective therapy, but we just don't know. Julie, is that a strategy that you offer to your patients or you utilize? I certainly would prefer to do it in the setting of enrolling in the soft or text trial. If I definitely wanted to shut down the ovaries without any question, the text trial would randomize to tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor. And I certainly wouldn't argue in a 32-year-old with nine positive nodes after neoadjuvant chemo that even though I don't have a 100% guarantee that that ovarian suppression is going to help. And that the kind of woman I would err on the side of betting that it could. There's certainly some neoadjuvant and preclinical data suggesting that in a HER2-positive tumor that the aromatase inhibitors might have more activity than tamoxifen. And I can understand why you would potentially want to use an aromatase inhibitor here. I would again just urge caution that there can be some breakthrough in the ECOG study that Nancy Davidson ran looking at this. About 15% of patients actually had estrogen levels that fell within a premenopausal range even though they were on an LHR channel at some point during the course of the trial. So I would just periodically take a look at that. You've had a great interest in premature menopause and the impact on patients. What do we know about the effects of premature menopause plus an AI in terms of bone? It's interesting this woman doesn't seem to have a whole lot of symptoms. What do we know about these effects in younger women? Well, the premature menopause in and of itself causes a dramatic, in the first year or two, loss of bone mineral density up to 7%, and the AI is at a little bit on top of that, actually only another percent or two. It seems to even out. The push through the premature menopause does seem to even out and drop off after the first year or two, though, and it gets to a typical kind of postmenopausal rate of bone loss after the first couple years. But when this woman, hopefully, she will survive to be 70, and I would worry about that this is just notching her up a couple decades ahead in terms of when she does hit the osteoporosis range. Although by following her closely and encouraging the good lifestyle changes and then instituting a bisphosphonate if necessary, you can hopefully avoid that. Alan? I wonder if I could ask the speakers to say something about the pregnancy aspect of this patient's case. She was near term, so I guess she was able to deliver right away, but let's say she'd been picked up earlier in the course of her pregnancy. Could the speaker say something about how they would have addressed the patient's care? Rich? Well, women who are pregnant when they were diagnosed with breast cancer is certainly a problem that comes up from time to time. It's a frequent discussion point. I think that in these patients, if they're beyond, clearly beyond the first trimester, 
it appears from all the data that we have that it's safe to give anthracycline-based chemotherapy, that is AC. There does not seem to be a detectable increase in fetal malformations under those conditions. The outcome of women who cancer is discovered while they're pregnant is overall worse if one is not pregnant, but once you adjust for later stage, they appear to be quite similar. So these patients that are not near-term and cannot deliver, I give them anthracycline-based chemotherapy once they're beyond the first trimester. If they're in the first trimester, then you have the difficult discussions about whether the fetus should be aborted, whether you want to wait until a certain period of time that you think it's safe. Those are very difficult discussions. You can do most staging procedures that you need to do during pregnancy, so that's not a problem. CT scans you can't do, but the others, you can substitute MRIs if you really think you need to do that. And of course, radiation therapy cannot be given during pregnancy, but that's usually not an issue. You can delay that. How about trastuzumab? Don't know. Julie? No data. And actually, I don't think there's really any data on taxanes. I feel comfortable with AC, myeloid growth factors, really, we don't have any data on either. I did recently see a patient as a second opinion who not only had her AC started during her first trimester, actually got a taxane while she was still pregnant and had a healthy baby, but I didn't see her till after all of this had happened. I was there to discuss the follow-up. I mean, I think that was pretty gutsy, and I didn't really want to go there because it had already been done, but it didn't seem like she had been counseled that there was potentially risk with doing those things. I mean, sometimes patients make those decisions. I wouldn't give a first trimester pregnancy patient chemo, though. You couldn't twist my arm hard enough to do that. Dr. Schwartz, has this patient had genetic testing, and what are her thoughts about future childbearing? Yeah, she's been BRCA tested and is negative, and she does want to have children in the future when she's completed her hormonal treatment, and that's one of the reasons she didn't have an ophorectomy and why she's getting Zolodex. Rich, how would you advise her about potential risk of future pregnancy after she completes her five years of Zolodex and Arimidex? Well, again, I think that the data that we have, some studies show that there's not an increased risk of recurrence. A few show that do, but when you look at them all together, there's not an increased risk of recurrence if a woman becomes pregnant after a breast cancer, at least as best we can tell. It's certainly, there's no easily measurable increased risk. So I tell my patients that I don't feel that their subsequent pregnancies would increase their risk of recurrence. As a practical matter, I tell them to delay this for several years usually just to escape the chance of early recurrence of a highly aggressive neoplasm. Leonard? Is there ever an indication to evaluate the nodes prior to starting neoadjuvant therapy with a sentinel node study? Richard? I generally don't, but some people would feel differently in terms of if the sentinel node was negative neoadjuvantly, then one would avoid an axillary node dissection. But in general, when I give neoadjuvant therapies, and I only give neoadjuvant therapies for patients who have inoperable, locally advanced breast cancer, or cancers in which my surgeon tells me 
that it would be problematic to do breast conservation or within a clinical trial because the neoadjuvant platform is an important platform for studying the biology of the disease. But in practice, those are the two. I don't routinely give neoadjuvant therapies because overall it does not affect the main outcome in breast cancer. As long as we're talking about neoadjuvant therapy, can you update us on where we are right now with the next NSABP neoadjuvant study? I had heard that they might be including bevacizumab. That is a possibility. The NSABP now, their neoadjuvant study is to try a number of different neoadjuvant regimens, mainly to look at expression signatures that might predict response to different types of chemotherapies. That's the main focus of the study, again, an investigational type focus.